I'm going to speak today about the relationship between science and human values. Now, it's, it's generally understood that, that questions of morality, questions of good and evil and right and wrong, are questions about which science officially has no opinion. Look in my eyes, what do you see? The cult of personality. It's, it's thought that science can, can help us get what we value, but it can never tell us what we ought to value. Oh, I'm the cult of personality. So I'm going to argue that this is an illusion, that the separation between science and human values is an illusion, and actually quite a dangerous one. I tell you what it makes three. Oh, I'm the cult of it's often thought that, that there's no description of the way the world is that can tell us how the world ought to be. But I think this is quite clearly untrue. I tell you what makes three. Values are a certain kind of fact. Oh, the they, they are facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. Welcome back. This is Know Thyself History Podcast. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong. Today's episode is different enough from any other episode of Know Thyself that I think an explanation is in order. As I've been interviewing the guests that I have and doing this series on the worst people in history, I've had to refresh myself on ethical concepts. I don't have to know everything about ethics, but I have to know a little bit. I have to at least know what's at stake in the conversations I'm having. And as I've done some of this background work, I've come across one name more than almost any other. And it's a name that I would not normally have associated with ethical philosophy. He did write a work called The Moral Landscape, which I'll get to. But he's not an ethicist per se. I doubt many of you listening to this podcast don't know who Sam Harris is. His website touts him as a neuroscientist, a philosopher, and a best-selling author. I know he has a PhD in neuroscience from UCLA, although I'm not sure how active he is in doing neuroscience research. I think of him more as a public intellectual. Sam originally rose to fame and prominence in 2004 when he published the book The End of Faith, and that book was popular and influential enough that he became known as one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, along with such luminaries as Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and of course Richard Dawkins. And this new atheist movement was characterized by kind of an unashamed, brash, in-your-face rejection of all religious claims. Not only of the truth claims, but also of any merit claims of religion. Since 2004, Sam has had several books published, bestsellers. His appearances at seminars and conferences and debates and even his conversations are very well attended. He generates a lot of buzz, a lot of interest. His podcast gets hundreds of thousands of downloads every episode, I'm sure. And he recently released a meditation app that's probably going to bring him in more than everything else he does put together. I realize that what I'm about to talk about might sound like a hit piece on Sam, but I don't want it to. In general, and in most cases, I like Sam Harris's work quite a bit. And even where I disagree with him, I like the fact that he's doing what he's doing. Having serious, long-form discussions about what I consider important social topics. 
and the quality of his guests is uniformly very high. In my opinion, Sam's kind of the antidote for this soundbite, buzzword level of discourse that we have in public so often now. And Sam is popular for very good reason, I think. He's one of the most talented wordsmiths in the business. So even if I don't agree with what Sam's saying, I really admire the way he can say it. And frankly, a lot of his values, I find myself agreeing with. Things like open reason discourse, humanitarianism, compassion, fairness, honesty, all those things you can get behind pretty easily. Which is not to say that I'm not baffled by him sometimes. I have no idea why he picks some of the battles he does. For example, Sam has spent how many hours now defending Charles Murray, the author of The Bell Curve, defending his right to call some races less intelligent than others based on his statistical research. Now I ask you, is that a hill you really should want to die on? Race-based intelligence differences? Now Sam claims he's just sticking up for a persecuted intellectual in Charles Murray. And we have to take him at his word for that. But even with that, doesn't that betray a certain lack of judgment? Who would want to pick up that banner and run with it? Now another thing about Sam is, I think he's just so used to being the smartest guy in the room that he really, really expects to be and needs to be right. Now I get it, he's a public intellectual. His stock and trade is to have knowledge and insight and a clarity of thought beyond the average proletariat. That's why we listen to him. But this need to be right can be kind of self-defeating in Sam's case. And this is relevant to today's episode of Know Thyself because Sam will return again and again to rehash slightly rephrase arguments that might not be in his best interest, things that he probably should just drop. But he really wants to convince everybody that he's been right all along. And there's another way in which is self-defeating, and that is that Sam will sometimes believe that he is faring extremely well in some kind of exchange when people looking at it from the outside might not agree with that. So, for example, in his email debate with Noam Chomsky or Ezra Klein, in his discussions of consciousness with Daniel Dennett, Sam will think that he's making point after point and convincing everybody. <laughs> and it can be almost this Wimplow level of delusion. I'm bleeding, making me the victim. If you don't know who Wimplow is, think of Baghdad Bob in a kung fu movie. I'm bleeding, making me the victim. So no matter how well Sam does in the argument, you can be sure he'll declare victory most of the time. And the final thing I'll say about this not-hit piece of Sam Harris, it's really sounding a lot like a hit piece. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing that. But one of the things about Sam that I think is relevant to today, by temperament, I think Sam Harris is an absolutist and a dogmatist. And I think that's not very controversial. In fact, Jonathan Haidt, the author of The Righteous Mind, noticed that same tendency in Sam. And I want to read to you from an article Jonathan Haidt wrote called Why Sam Harris is Unlikely to Change His Mind. Quote, when I was doing the research for The Righteous Mind, I read the New Atheist books carefully, and I noticed that several of them sounded angry. I also noticed that they used rhetorical structures suggesting certainty far more often than I was used to in scientific writing. Words such as always and never, as well as phrases such as there is no doubt and clearly we must. To check my hunch, I took the full text of the three most important New Atheist books, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, Sam Harris's The End of Faith, and Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell, and I ran the files through a widely used text analysis program that counts words that have been shown to indicate certainty, including always, never, certainly, every, and undeniable. To provide a close standard of comparison, I also analyzed three recent books by other scientists who write about religion but are not considered new atheists. To provide an additional standard of comparison, I also analyzed books by three right-wing radio and television stars whose reasoning style is not generally regarded as scientific. 
That included Glenn Beck, Ann Coulter, and Sean Hannity. So Jonathan Haidt sees Sam Harris talking like he knows exactly what he's talking about. There's no debate. It's absolutely certain. And he runs a study. And he sets up this study to measure certainty words among these different authors. And the results are surprising. Sam Harris's book is an outlier, meaning he uses certainty phrases far more often than other scientific writers. He uses them more often than religious writers. He uses them more often than the new atheists, who are also dogmatists in their own right. And he uses them more often than Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, and Ann Coulter. So in other words, Sam Harris, Mr. Common Rational, shows more absolutism and more dogmatism in his writing than a right-wing ideologue. And that's a problem because certainty phrases and words don't advance dialogue. They're just thought stoppers. But as I, as I said, it's becoming less and less believable. This isn't a hit piece of Sam Harris. There's a lot to admire in Sam Harris's body of work. The quality of his guests, the level of the discussion is very high. He's brilliant in his use of the language. And I've learned a lot just from listening to his podcast. So if he keeps doing what he's doing, I'll keep listening. What I want to talk about today are Sam's ideas about values and ethics, because it's that part of his work that I've come across again and again during this latest series. In 2010, he wrote a book called The Moral Landscape, and he subtitled the book, How Science Can Determine Human Values. And make no mistake, Harris does not mean that science can determine what the human values already are, what values we already hold. Nope. Sam believes that science can tell us what is morally right and morally wrong. And Sam followed up the publication of this book with a TED Talk that's had millions of views. And I have to say, I I'm going to be generous to Sam. The reception to his book was mixed. Most people thought he was overreaching. But despite all the negative feedback he got then and that he's continued to get since, Sam has continued to defend his views right up to the current moment. Even as late as last month on his Waking Up podcast, He's speaking to the founder of the TED Talks, and he's defending that same view. So I want to talk about it today for a couple of reasons. One is, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, ethical question out there. How do we determine what's right and wrong? How do we derive meta-ethical foundations for what is right and what is wrong? What's the ground for our morals? And that question is especially relevant now. How do we even talk about what's right and wrong? if we can't agree on some kind of meta-ethical foundation for what we mean when we use those words. So for that reason alone, it's worth discussing. But the other reason isn't all that noble. Frankly, it's just kind of bugging me. Sam's gotten under my skin because he just won't give it up. And I think he's an agent of irrationality when he promotes this view that science can determine what's right and wrong. So there you have it. Instead of me trying to summarize Sam's position and maybe making a straw man out of it, Sam claims to hate straw man arguments, that's where you make your opponent's argument weak so that you can easily defeat it, as if you were fighting a straw man. So I think it's only fair to let Sam make his own case. The following clip comes from a debate at Arizona State called Science Can Tell Us Right From Wrong. Um, I'm going to talk to you tonight about the relationship, as I see it, between science and human values. Many people think this relationship is somehow problematic. Uh, usually because they think that the universe is parceled into these separate quantities. On the one hand, we have facts, which obviously science can deal with. But on the other, we have values, which inconveniently for us cover the most important questions in human life. And it's thought science really can't touch these. Questions of right and wrong and good and evil, uh, questions about really the, 
the, really the, the, the core issues of how to raise our children, what proper goals we should strive for in life. Uh, and it's thought that while science may be able to help us get what we value, it can never tell us what we ought to value. And I want to kind of push this intuition around because I think this is an illusion. I think the, the split between facts and values is an illusion. And I think it's quite a dangerous one to be taken in by at this moment in human history because it, we're in danger of waking up in a world where the only people who are absolutely sure that moral truth exists will be religious demagogues who think the universe is 6,000 years old. And they'll, they'll be sure that these truths exist because they got them from a voice in a whirlwind. Uh, so I actually think the, the connection between facts and values is actually quite straightforward and philosophically uninteresting. And, and for that reason, we could ignore much of what has been said in moral philosophy over the ages. I think values reduce to facts. They reduce to facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. The moment you get conscious minds that can experience change, then we can talk about changes that matter. We can talk about right and wrong and good and evil. We can, we can talk about this because what there is to value are changes in experience, to the degree that experience can change. So if we, if we care more about our fellow primates than we do about insects, as indeed we do, it's because we believe they're laid bare to a wider spectrum of changes in experience. And if, if you doubt this, I would just ask you to consider, imagine a universe in which every conscious creature suffers as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. Okay, I call this the, the worst possible misery for everyone. Okay. The worst possible misery for everyone is bad. Now, if, if the word bad means anything, it applies to that situation. Now, this, this, it seems to me, is the only philosophical assumption you have to grant me. The worst possible misery for everyone is bad, and everything else, every other possible state of the universe, is better. And given that the experience of conscious minds is a natural phenomenon emerging out of the way the universe, the way the universe is, and is, there, is constrained by the laws of nature in some way, then there are going to be right and wrong ways to move along this continuum of possible experience. There are going to be right answers to the question of how to avoid the worst possible misery. And it'll, it'll be possible to be wrong in your efforts to avoid the worst possible misery. And that's all we need for a science of morality. And this, the requisites of human well-being can clearly be understood on many levels. We're talking about the genome, we're talking about states of the human brain, and we're also talking about economic systems and political arrangements. But each of these levels, granted they're, they're, the details are complex, each falls into one of the, the familiar bins of science. We're talking about genetics, and neurobiology, and psychology, and sociology, and economics. This captures the, our possible discussion about the real causes of, of human and animal well-being. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I edited out some of the flowery language, of course, and then that scratchy sound was in every version I could find. One thing that struck me as I was listening to this is that I think Sam is right when he says the stakes are high in essence. We can't live in a world where the only people who have any degree of moral certainty are the dogmatists, the religious zealots, 
the fanatics. It's what W.B. Yeats was writing about in his poem, The Second Coming, when he said, The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So I think Sam's goal is to have some kind of objective, universal ethic. And I don't think that's a bad goal insofar as it goes. I just don't think he can get there with science. You only believe in science. That's probably why we never win. And I think it should be obvious that you can't determine the grounds for morals from science by looking at what science is. Science is an activity where you try to learn things through observation and experimentation. And for that activity to be science, it has to follow the scientific method. That's a systematic approach that goes something like this. You make an observation, and from that you form a hypothesis about what you think is going on. And then, if you're following the scientific method, you test your hypothesis, and any predictions that that hypothesis would make. And once you perform the experiment, you see how well the data fits your hypothesis. And if necessary, you go back to the drawing board. You adjust your hypothesis. One of the best ways I've heard science described is conjecture and refutation. So you make a guess about what's going on, you perform studies, and you see if you are refuted. And you repeat this process, and you keep honing down and refining your hypotheses. Now, it should be obvious that the scientific method requires hypotheses that can be experimented upon. And you have to have some way to falsify your hypothesis. So if you claim, for example, that the angels weep if unicorns mate with werewolves, that may be true, I have no idea. But you can't claim it's a scientific hypothesis because there's no way to get observational data to disconfirm or falsify it. So that's science. Now, that's not the only way that we learn things. Of course it's not. We can learn things based on the relationship between different ideas, like computer science or advanced mathematics. This is just using logic. It's not based on what you observe. You could consult an authority or a book. In fact, probably most, the vast majority of our learning comes simply through cultural transmission, talking to other people. Some people rely on their feelings, on their impressions, on their dreams. These are all ways in which people seek knowledge. But they're not science, because they don't follow the scientific method. And science works, let's face it. It's given us a coherent story of what's going on in the world around us. And it doesn't just have explanatory value. It has great predictive value. And technology is kind of the material manifestation of the power of science. So we can all understand the effects of science and how powerful it is as a way of seeking knowledge. But people who really understand the scientific method and people who do science understand one of its most attractive aspects. That is that it is limited. It can't give us absolute truth. It can't tell us what absolutely is. The best we can get is only the best so far. Oh, this is the worst day of my life. It's the worst day of your life so far. So Homer's absolutely right there. Bart's hypothesis that this is the worst day of his life could be falsified by one simple thing, and that is Bart having a worst day. And it's the same with science. You can falsify a theory with contrary data, but you can't prove for all time that you got it that no future experiment could disprove your theory. Even theories that are so established that they become laws are not exempt from this. Take some law that's really generally accepted, like the fact that energy can't be created or destroyed. It simply changes forms. All it would take for that law to be falsified would be proof of energy being created or destroyed. So the best we can get is the best so far. And there is nothing wrong with that because science in all of its manifestations, biology, physics, chemistry, is the most powerful tool we have, at least in terms of results, for telling us about the reality of the physical world. 
Oh boy, I realize I just used the word reality and opened up another can of worms. So to tell you what I mean by reality, I'm just going to give you one of my favorite quotes. It's from Philip K. Dick. He says, Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. And if you think that's some kind of a joke, think about how many things in the past have already gone away because there's nobody left who believes in them. But even though science is powerful, can it give us our values? To answer this, we need to understand what is known as the fact-value distinction. Statements about facts are called factual statements or descriptive statements. And facts are what is, they're the way things are. And factual statements can be either true if they truly represent the way things are or false if they misrepresent the way things are. Pretty obvious. When I say value statements, I mean statements about the way things ought to be, the way things should be. Those are also known as normative statements or prescriptive statements. And since the Enlightenment anyway, people have believed that there is a qualitative, fundamental difference between statements of fact and statements of values. And this fact-value distinction has its, probably its earliest and also its most famous formulation in the works of the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, one of the best people ever to take up a pen. And Hume was a brilliant and a beautiful writer, but the writing style is archaic and it doesn't translate well into a podcast. I read the entire quote and realized nobody would really follow it. So essentially what Hume says is, when he's reading somebody's system of morality, he notices that they're going on making rational points, talking about what is and what isn't. And suddenly they shift from what is and what isn't to talking about what ought or ought not be. And he says that this shift is often imperceptible. But even though people try to sneak it past you, it is of the last consequence. In other words, the greatest importance. Because, as he says, ought and ought not are a completely different relationship than is and is not. And you can't make that shift without explaining how you're making the shift. Hume, to my knowledge, is the first person to point out that little subtlety, that little trick, where people will talk about the fact that human beings are this way, God is that way, and all of a sudden they start moralizing and say how we should act and how we should behave. He says, you can't just do that without explaining it. And Hume realizes the significance of what he's pointing out here. He says, if people would just pay attention to this small distinction and not make this mistake, that it would be fatal to most vulgar systems of morality, most common systems of morality. Now there's a lot there, so I want to just summarize what Hume is saying. He's essentially saying that facts about what is are very different, and different not just in quantity, they're different in kind, they're wholly different relationships than statements about what ought to be. And once you see this, it's so obvious that you wonder why nobody saw it before Hume. And I think it's because in our daily life, we make that jump all the time. So somebody says, your mother is wise, your mother has your best interest at heart, so you should follow the advice of your mother. And that sounds perfectly reasonable. Nobody would argue with that. But if you were to try to lay that same line of reasoning out in a formal argument, it wouldn't be sound because you would have to say this, your mother is wise, your mother has your best interest at heart, and you would need this one more premise, you should follow the advice of people who are wise and have your best interest at heart. Therefore, you should follow your mother's advice. Then it becomes a sound argument, because you haven't just gone from facts about your mother to what you should do. You've connected those facts with what I call a linking statement, something that links facts with the values. 
And like I said, this can be tricky. We don't even notice these assumptions. We miss it all the time in our everyday speech. So I want to make it even more obvious. Suppose I say to you, there are four oranges in the refrigerator. Therefore, it's Wednesday. This is not a convincing argument. There's no Wednesday in the premises. There's just four oranges in the refrigerator. You need a linking premise between the oranges and the refrigerator. So if you could add this premise, if there are four oranges in the refrigerator, it's Wednesday. There are four oranges in the refrigerator. Therefore, it's Wednesday. Now suddenly that argument makes sense. And just like you can't get from oranges to Wednesday without some statement that links them together, you can't get from what is facts about the world to claims about what we ought to do without that linking premise. And so with that in mind, I want to listen to an exchange between Sam Harris and Sean Carroll on the Sam Harris Waking Up podcast. Sean Carroll is a physicist and a philosopher. And let me just say this. I hope it's okay to use this clip for the purposes of review and discussion. I don't really understand all that, but if I have to take it down, I will, and I'll just read the quotes. But for now, here's Sean Carroll speaking to Sam Harris. You have made much of this notion that you've derived from... from Hume, that you can't get an ought from an is. Perhaps you want to prop that up. Like I, in the past, in my book, The Moral Landscape, and in, I think it was the the TED Talk I gave that you reacted to way back when, I claim that you can make ultimately rigorous scientific claims about right and wrong and good and evil. And I was arguing for a kind of what I would call a moral realism, which is to say that there are facts about the well-being of conscious creatures, which is which can serve everything we could conceivably mean by right and wrong and good and evil, right? And you are, are a fan of Hume's parsing of this matter, so perhaps give give me the reasons why not from the Hume side, and then we can. Sure, I think that there's two slightly different claims. Um, one would be the claim that you can derive ought from is, which I think is just manifestly wrong. Uh, very, that's, that's just logically wrong, right? In by the rules of logic. Garbage in, garbage out. Values in, values out. Facts in, facts out. By using the rules of deductive logic, you cannot derive conclusions about properties that did not somehow appear in the axioms or the premises from which you did your logic. In order to derive conclusions about what ought to be true or what should be true or what is morally right, we have to include in our theory an assumption or an axiom that relates to values, that relates to what is good and what, what ought to do. I think that is a straightforward computational science claim. Yeah, so I've always viewed that, I viewed it as a kind of semantic trick which need not confine our thinking about these things. The other way to, to come at it, from my point of view, is you can give up all notion of ought and should. Values come in, put your hand on a hot stove, you will discover your value to get your hand off of it very early. You don't have to be reasoned into it. This is as incontrovertible as anything you can experience. There are certain things that you will just want to avoid. The only thing I think I need to be a moral realist and for science ultimately to be the framework in which we talk about right and wrong and good and evil is to concede that the worst possible misery for everyone is bad. Ultimately, the questions of value fall within that naturalistic paradigm. So you seem to say that there is a principle that we should avoid maximal suffering for conscious creatures. So do we agree that you are not deriving that principle from what is? 
That's an extra little bit of axiom. The point is that the assumptions you need to get morality off the ground are not a subset of the ones you need to get science off the ground. You're introducing a new assumption that we should avoid the maximum pain for conscious creatures. So how is that an assumption that is any less fundamental? I didn't say it was. It's just not science. If all we're doing is science, we're describing what happens in the world or what could happen and we stop. But to do anything about morality, morality is necessarily a set of statements about what we ought to do, what should happen, what is right and wrong. It, it seems be like very liberating for you to just say, yes, we should assume that. <laughs> well, but um, I just don't see there, there's no alternative. Well, like if you actually if there's no alternative that we should certainly do it. You really don't want to just admit. I mean, I, no, I, I could I, certainly yeah. imagine all sorts of alternative. What, what, imagine another priority. We should maximize the suffering of conscious creatures. What? Admit it. It's OK. It, it's not. It's, You'll be happier. You it, should do it. Yes, very good point. Minimize the suffering of these. (laughs) So I don't know how to make it any more clear than what Sean Carroll just did. You know, Sam Harris comes back to this again and again. Several of these tropes he comes back to again and again. He's fascinated with people putting their hand on a stove. I don't know if he had some bad experience as a child or what. But he keeps coming back to this idea of putting your hand on a stove as if it's the sine qua non of all suffering. But one thing he also does repeatedly is say, if you will just grant me that the worst possible suffering for conscious creatures is bad, then I can prove my morality, essentially. Well, Sam, that's the exact thing you have to prove. Why should we grant you the exact thing that you have to prove. It's like somebody in a debate saying, if you will just grant me the existence of an omniscient, omnipotent being, I can prove to you the existence of God. And Sean Carroll lays it out for Sam beautifully, and yet Sam won't admit it. And so you kind of come to a fork in the road here. You have to say either Sam doesn't see it, in which case he's not very intelligent. And I don't believe that, I know he's intelligent. The other side of that fork is, Sam does see it, but he won't admit it. And in that case, he's not intellectually honest. I can't judge Sam's intentions here. I don't really know why he's not seeing it. Maybe he really does have a blind spot to it. Maybe he's one of those very brilliant people who has just a little bit of a blind spot. Other than that, I can't say for sure why Sam would be trying to sneak a stealth premise past us, why he's trying to get an ought from an is so desperately. I have my opinion, though. Now, I don't know if this is right. This is my hypothesis. I think Sam really wants to get to an objective ethics. He wants universal objective moral truth. And he wants to base it on the well-being of conscious creatures. Now, from his neuroscience background, I think this is what Sam envisions to some extent. That with an fMRI scanner, okay, you you can actually do kind of a lifetime analysis of people's brain function. And you can identify optimal states of the brain that correspond to states of human flourishing or well-being of conscious creatures. Then you simply have to do experiments and find out what kind of conditions bring about those brain states. And you can measure it all on an fMRI scanner. So there's objective data about how flourishing and how much well-being conscious creatures are experiencing. And then you can tie your morality and your ethics to a particular activity pattern in the brain of conscious beings. And I don't see any reason that it's not possible 
to identify certain brain patterns that are associated with human flourishing or a sense of subjective well-being. That's fine. I don't have any problem with that. That may be a highly sophisticated way to affirm Sam's value of minimizing suffering for conscious creatures. That's noble. But it's not original, not by a long shot. What is new and original in Sam's theory, aside from the little tool, the fMRI scanner, whatever else he thinks will help us identify optimal states, what's really new in Sam's theory is that he believes that experiments and studies can tell us what we ought to value, that we ought to value the decrease of suffering of conscious creatures. And there is no way science can give us that. So really, what's new in Sam Harris's theory isn't good. And what's good in Sam Harris's theory isn't new. It's just utilitarianism in another form. Utilitarianism has been associating morality with human happiness for many, many years before Sam Harris came on the scene. And I myself would say, if pinned down, that the morally right action is to try to minimize suffering for things that can suffer. If something's capable of suffering, don't make it suffer and try to relieve the suffering of those things that are suffering. So that seems to me to be fairly obvious. In fact, trivially so. But I didn't get there through science. I got there through my upbringing, through empathy, through moral sentiments, and through a shared Judeo-Christian heritage of humanism with people like Sam Harris. So that's also what's informing Sam Harris. I'm just not sure why he doesn't want to just admit that. If he's going to claim that it's all scientific, I want to know what experiment he performed that told him that the morally right thing to do in every circumstance is to minimize the suffering of conscious creatures. Because there is no such experiment. Nowhere in that entire process does a value suddenly spring up. The only value you get is the value you bring to it. Now, I've ranted about this forever, and frankly, Sam's claim to be able to derive objective morality from science it's not unique to him. And it actually points to what I consider kind of a strange trend among the skeptical and scientific community in general. For some reason, scientists don't accept that there's a distinction between what is and what ought to be. And so you get in the weird situation of brilliant people accepting a very philosophically naive utilitarianism without even understanding the underpinnings of their own morality. And when you point this out to them, they don't even seem to think it's a problem. And maybe it's not a problem. It probably has very little bearing on the way people choose to live their lives, because that's frankly just a matter of inertia most of the time. But what I don't think they should do is make claims that they can't back up. So let's say we as a society come to a true moral or ethical dilemma. How are we going to choose? We have a very naive understanding about why we're doing the things we're doing anyway. And if you're trying to erect your entire moral philosophy on this shaky foundation, this dubious premise, this hidden premise, then how are you going to fare when you come up against some kind of absolutist mentality from, say, another civilization? Somebody attacks you and says, you know, the morality consists in me cutting your head off. How are you going to argue that? What scientific experiment are you going to conduct to establish that? I do believe that it would be great to have a uniform, a universal ethic, something we all agree upon. And it probably will be, or at least incorporate, forms of utilitarianism. But it can't be this castle in the air that Sam Harris is trying to build. There's one more point from Hume that I think might be relevant here. Maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think so. Because Sam's moral theory gives primacy to science. He thinks we should rely on experimentation and analysis. But Hume wouldn't have any of that. He said, quote, We speak not strictly and philosophically when we talk of the combat between passion and reason. 
reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. What is Hume saying? He's not saying that our passions, our drives, our motivations, and so forth win out over reason. He's saying that passions and reasons are not even playing the same game. They're completely different spheres, just like is and ought. And in this case, Hume is saying that our reason is just the slave, the servant of our passions. Now, what does that mean? I think it helps to compare it to a map. Now, I know this is kind of a hackneyed illustration, but I think it holds. Reason, and by extension, science, would be like a map. The map could be detailed. It could show you every part of the world and tell you almost everything about it. But it's not going to tell you where you want to go. So our passions, our drives, tell us where we want to go, and reason is the map by which we get there. So in that sense, the map serves our purposes and our drives. It helps us accomplish something that we've set out to do. So there's no doubt that reason can inform our values. For example, we may think something looks awesome. When we see it at first blush, we may say, that's what we want. That's our goal. That's what we want in life. But then as we use our reason, as we study it, we may be inclined to abandon that and prefer something else. So in that sense, reason can determine what we value. But a better word than determine would be inform, help direct, help us understand what we value. And once we value something, it can tell us how we can get there or how well we're doing in accomplishing it. But it isn't driving the ship. Something has to motivate us. And just fact after fact after fact has to somewhere inside of us speak to something we want for us to be motivated to do anything. That's what I think Hume is saying. Well, it seems to me that Sam Harris and those like him see science as deciding for us where we want to get. But according to Hume, science can't do that. So Sam is passionate about the idea that morality consists in minimizing the suffering of conscious creatures and increasing their well-being. That's great. That's his passion. Science can help him achieve what he's motivated to achieve. But if somebody comes to him and says, science tells me that true morality consists in only building up the strongest of the species. The weak must die. The weak must be used in the interest of the stronger. Say Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic comes and says, justice is only the interest of the stronger. Well, how on earth could Sam refute that? He's not going to be able to do an experiment. And that person who thinks only the strong should survive can use science just as well as Sam Harris to accomplish his goals. Science is the map, but you have to choose your destination. And so for me, when I get through the moral landscape, all that Sam has accomplished is making an argument for trading out our map for a GPS, using science a little bit more literately to help us achieve human happiness. But he has not established any kind of new meta-ethical foundation for our morality. He can't do it. And I'm just going to say this. History isn't just about people doing things. It's about ideas. And unfortunately for the moral landscape, the idea that science can determine human values was destroyed about 300 years ago in Scotland by a 27-year-old boy named David Hume. I'm not listening to you. You only believe in science. That's probably why we never win. <laughs> <laughs>